This podcast is part of the MyPodcast.com network. Go online right now and get your very own 100% free podcast, MyPodcast.com. Hello, you're listening to the CEC Podcast. I'm your producer, Demonic Murray, from the blog Graduate School Gamer. I'm going to edit the show a little differently this week. I started the CDC podcast out as a little experiment just because after the creation of Critical Distance, I felt it would be neat to have a little podcast for the site where many of the bloggers from our community and outside the community could get a voice and could speak about the issues that many of our cohorts and you listeners have been discussing. I did not intend it to become a weekly podcast, but with the excitement and the massive response from the community, it ended up being that way. This week, um, my guests you'll hear in order will be Roger Travis from the blog Living Epic, Michael Abbott from the blog Brainy Gamer, and Travis McGill from the blog The Autumnal City. This week we're going to be talking about genre. The idea of talking about genre in video games came out after Rockstar released their trailer for Red Dead Redemption, and that got a couple of us talking about the idea of genre, and specifically the Western games. So I'm dividing this podcast into four sections. At the beginning, we'll discuss about the Western and its relationship with genre and the video game. And then we'll move on to other subjects of genre within video games, with games that implement genre from outside mediums, games that play with the genre of video games specifically, and talking about bigger issues of genre concerning the medium, specifically with technology and consoles and so forth. So bear with me as I try to experiment with the format of this episode, and I urge you to give me some feedback on the discussion thread, the comments thread, at criticaldistance.com, because this is a podcast for you. So I hope you enjoy this week's podcast. I hope you enjoy listening to the great guests I have this week, and please stick around at the end of the episode for an announcement on the future of the CC podcast. And with that, here we go. I guess this week's subject is on genre, and genre is quite the fully loaded word. I'm familiar with it. And it's, it's hard to identify with any medium. And especially with games, which is still a growing medium in itself, it's going to be difficult to uh, interrogate the questions of genre in games, especially from other medium and within game design as well. Um, so I just want to focus on the issue of genre, on how it's integrated in games, and how games also mix and match their own genres as of late. Do you want to start on... Uh, the Western, since I guess that was the initial thing that sparked me, and I guess Travis too, Roger Travis, um, <laughs> to, to look at the subject of genre in games. Yeah, we were on, um, we were having a kind of a little chunk conversation, the kind you, you have on Twitter, uh, about why it is that there aren't more Western games. And I, um, I think kind of playing devil's advocate... Uh, wondering whether, in fact, that was because we associate the Western 
so closely with a certain filmic language. And the example that kind of shines in my mind is the first shot of John Wayne in John Ford's amazing and classic stagecoach, um, where you see him as, um, what is his name? The Ringo kid. Yeah. Um, yeah, you, you, the, the stagecoach is approaching and there he is in the way and there's this amazing iconic shot of what will forever be the John Wayne Western hero. Um, and which sort of briefly goes uh, out of focus too, which is pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I wondered whether there, you could do that in uh, a game, even in a cutscene. And the, the reason I was thinking that maybe you couldn't was that because of the nature of the the narration, the the blend of first and second person narrations that you get in games, that kind of shot, which is such a, a filmic third person shot, um, it would be something that you could reproduce. And then Michael came back at me, I think, very um, interestingly, with the idea that that no, maybe you couldn't do that shot exactly that way, but it's the kind of thing that would be really neat to see um, a, a gifted designer uh, translate. Yeah, I, I, to me, I think what just kind of triggered that discussion of, well, actually, that's a good word, isn't it? Uh, for Westerns, <laughs> uh, was, is because it's so, it is such a genre, you know, that it's so driven by a set of conventional iconic kind of symbols and, and, and ideas, and there's a certain kind of terrain that's covered in the genre, that lends itself in a certain way to, you know, another kind of, of artist getting his or her hands on it and sort of translating those conventions into other languages or other even mechanical, you know, conventions. So the obviously... You think about a Western, maybe your first thought is, well, it have to be a shooter. But really, I, I think if you, in my opinion, if you looked hard at the genre, it seems to me more likely have success in the genre, perhaps, as an RPG or as an adventure RPG. Because yeah, the shooting exactly. is really the least interesting part of it in, in a certain way. Yeah, and, and also the um, the technology of the guns. I think it was 8-Bit Hack who, who pointed this out, which is that the guns load so slowly if you were to hit the say the right shoulder to reload your gun it would be unbelievably frustrating uh, if it were at all realistic if we we're going to kind of maintain the flavor of the, the western to to watch yourself reload and if you think about that in terms of the way the films work when um when someone's reloading it's a very very dramatic moment uh, um i'm thinking of kind of reload moments in um high noon um that those moments are, are very dramatic, but it would just, I think, be very frustrating for the player. And that kind of points out how different the Western is from the shooter. And I think it's a, a great way of asking the question of what is genre. I mean, it may be that we can't come up with a definition for genre, but when we see the Western, we know we're talking about a genre, and then we can differentiate between different genres, even when those genres don't seem really to be commensurable, right? It seems strange to say, okay, one genre is the Western, genre is the shooter. But when you look at it from the standpoint of, okay, could a Western be a shooter, you start to identify what the constraints are, both in the technology and in terms of the narrative uh, conventions and in terms of what makes an emotional impact. Yeah. I don't see the problem mainly being the integration of realism of the Western, of how we perceive it, to games, but more so on 
trying to integrate the iconography, like the sort of like mythos of the Western into the game, which I believe is more important, um, because there are many different kinds of Westerns, and they all have their own sort of collective mythos and their own like different ones. If you look at the Westerns of Sam Peckinpah, which are very deconstructivist of the Western, as opposed to the John Fords, and then the Spaghetti Westerns, of course. They each have their own language of that genre, and I believe it's more important for a game to get that sort of iconography of what kind of Western it is and what makes a Western essential, rather than purely integrating the sort of perceived realism into the mechanics. That's a great point. It, it makes me wonder, I mean, I flash on John Ford's vistas, uh, the, the iconic vistas of, of Monument Valley, um, and then I think about Sergio Leone's vistas, and I think when you're looking at those, both directors are kind of playing off of what they know their audience knows about the mythos of the West, and the vistas mean different things, but they the, they share, I think, the same um, the same basic language. And then I wonder, well, if you were to see that same kind of vista in an RPG where you were playing either first person or third person, but your character kind of discovers that vista, does it mean the thing? Um, and my instinct is to say no, but at this moment, I'm not exactly sure why. I think someone chose starting out with Western just because I haven't ever seen a Western. Uh, but <laughs> I, do, I think part of the challenge with trying to translate something like a Western into a video game um, is the fact that a designer typically going to be trying to shoehorn it into a traditional video game genre. But I think that the even like uh, Roger was saying, just trying to capture that moment with the reload of a gun um, I think it's possible to have the shooting aspect of a Western in a video game without it being a shooter, and that would be interesting to see. I was interested in the reaction to the new uh, Rockstar Western, uh, the new Red Dead game, because uh, people seemed to think that it looked like it would be a spaghetti Western-style sort of approach, and then when you saw the footage or the preview or whatever, it appears that it's not really going to be like that stylistically. But what, it, what was the what specifically, Michael? Was it that that first made you think it was going to be a spaghetti western, and then what? Was it was it the shot. Was? It was the shot that seems extremely derivative of a, hmm. a very similar uh, shot of Clint Eastwood in uh, Fistful of Dollars or in, in one of those uh-huh. films, The Good, Bad, and the Ugly. It was the it was the cover art, if I'm correct. Yeah, and I had a similar reaction. I saw I saw it and thought, okay, I kind of get the flavor for what this would be. And I don't know why, but my initial response to what sort of Western should a video game Western be <laughs> was yeah. Spaghetti Western, was that kind of Western, um, not John Ford, um, mm-hmm. not Sam Peckinpah even. Um, but that there's something about that that whole milieu, that whole – the kind of the silent protagonist, w- which mm. seems to really lend – the man with no name, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you, he's like, he is almost by definition an avatar. <laughs> yes. And, and so you, you fill out his personality yourself as a viewer in ways that are similar to how you do that, you know, w- w- with with a video game. But I mean, having said that, I think this guy, this um, Red uh, Red Harlow, you know, he's actually a, an interesting fellow. I mean, it, the the first game, which I didn't finish does sort of get you interested in him. I mean, as, as characters in video games go, it's not 
horrible. You know, it's it's there are certain conflicts and certain uh, narrative kind of conceits that they deal with in that game that kind of hooked me. And so if they if they push that along and make that more interesting, maybe maybe he doesn't need to be a kind of a blank avatar. I, I wonder though if I mean thinking about film westerns, whether the the man with no name character is simply a kind of extension of something that is in fact essential to characters in Ford westerns um, and Hawks westerns. The idea, I mean, it, and is it kind of embodied above all in the John Wayne characters? That is, the the western hero is a cipher. I mean, and you you kind of you don't know in Stagecoach even. You're not exactly sure what's going on behind John Wayne's eyes, and that's kind of part of the interest. Um, and so it's, I mean, I, I think that gets accentuated in the spaghetti westerns, and, and I think you're absolutely right that, that having a spaghetti western game would be a, a really natural fit. But I, um, it makes me wonder about the kinds of things that go on in, even in science fiction RPGs. And here I'm thinking of Mass Effect, where, where you get this very interesting blend of stuff that's given to you, and Bioware does this, I think, more than any other set of developers do. Um, they, there are certain things that they give you about who your character is going to be, and then there are certain parts of your character that, that are left as a cipher for you to fill in. And I, just to reiterate, I think that's a wonderful parallel with the way characters like the, the man with no name invite the audience in. I just wanted to connect that up with my own classical concerns because it, it makes me flash instantly on the way that epic heroes like Achilles and Odysseus are, um, are clearly supposed to be ciphers that the audience freights with their own uh, values and their own judgments. Maybe a, the best reason for a Western video game is all the great mini games you can throw in. Yeah, I mean, you've got you know you go into the saloon and and you know you've got ten different mini games you can play. So, well, if you look at let's look at the idea of the Avatar and these these Western stars that we know because both John Wayne and Clint Eastwood are very interesting. Western icons, and that they're both very tall men, they're both extremely wooden to an extent. It can be subtle, it can also be poor acting, it's somewhere in between that. And they're both very short-spoken characters, they speak with their actions, and that seems like a great, great archetype for an avatar for a game, actually. Yeah, that's a, a great point. The Clint Eastwood's character um, is, uh, is a cipher, but clearly a shallow cipher. Yeah. But I mean, it, it is to me. It it really there's just this beautiful seductiveness about the Western. I mean, Roger, you call it the landscape. It, it just the whole the iconography of it, the the world of it, it for exploration. I'm just thinking about like what gets translated into a video game that would be interesting or cool. Mm. It, you know, the exploration, the way that it exists on a frontier, and that there, there's, a, there's a danger attached to that always. And there are relationships that are forged sort of from scratch because you're out there. And so everything must be discovered and forged from scratch. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a world that carries with it all of its own kind of history. So as a designer, you sort of hit the ground running when you step foot into that world. You don't have to make it up from scratch. And, you know, you've got all these legendary characters. So, I mean, the, the Western took place in such a limited period of American history. I mean, basically all these guys lived around the same time. It's a finite world and you can set a story in there. And, and, you know, it's not crazy that you'd bump into Wild Bill Hickok at some point because he was there. There's all kinds of really just enticing stuff about that world to me that a really good game designer, I would think, would just want to grab onto. 
So do you guys have any ideas for how a Western video game could do something, uh, add to the experience of the Western, something that a film couldn't do? Well, I think if I understand what Rockstar's up to with uh, Red Dead uh, Redemption, it's it's going to be a sandbox kind of game. So depending on how well it's done, obviously, I mean, the idea that you can make decisions based on the experiences you have in that environment rather than being kind of led by the nose, you know, through a linear story that a film gives you. I mean, these are kind of obvious differences that, that a game can do. But if that's cleverly done, I could see where that character confronting all kinds of situations that have a kind of an ethical dimension to them. And I mean, you know, the Western is just rife with the whole question of right versus wrong. It's yeah. sort of fundamental to the definition of that genre. Um, yeah, and I mean, I, I just flashed on the idea that at some point maybe you buy your first hat and you have to decide whether it's going to be a white hat or a black hat. <laughs> well, that's really interesting that you say it's going to be a sandbox game because I didn't know it would be a sandbox game. And I feel that the sandbox would have to be very limited because most Western towns are a single strip with the entire town on that strip. It's in the middle of nowhere, and it's a very limited space they can travel in. Yeah, I think I'd be curious to see how they make how they make use of the other environments because the Western is such an open world in and of itself, right? But uh, I mean, if you had a horse and you were able to explore, I mean, I'm thinking of the way that Fallout 3 handles this, which is it's essentially this great big ghost town in a way, if you think think of it like that, with all these kind of remnants of civilization. I mean, you could see where they might want to plug into that a little bit um, so that something could happen to you when you go up into the mountains for that might have to do with your interaction with, with nature and with the environment, with the kind of the primitive tools you have available to you. It may not always involve human interaction, for example. And you can have an, an infinite number of ranches, right, around the town where you can ride out and, and different events and different stories can be taking place. I think what we're talking about is not necessarily a strict translation of the filmic language, but a way of bringing over certain ideas that lie behind the conventions of, of the filmic language into uh, the, the very different concerns of, of what you can do with. And here I think we're getting back to what you guys, I guess, were talking about in the IRC with the mashing up in, in order to, to get that kind of impact. Obviously, I think you do need to, to mash up different elements of games. You need some of the shooting so that you know it's a Western. You probably even maybe need a little of the strategy game to, uh, to think about how you build a civilization. That's uh, one of the most important elements of, of what makes Westerns Westerns. Whether you're talking about a kind of John Ford, we're building up civilization, or you're talking about a Sam Peckinpah civilization isn't happening. <laughs> Take this discussion a little bit outside from the Western and more broadly into genre. Um, do you want to look at three very prominent genres in games being science fiction, fantasy, and horror, which are probably one of the biggest genres we have, and how they are treated uh, in the video game space? Arguably, I would say that both the fairy tale and the, the horror suspense genres are done very well in games, but I think sci science fiction is probably one of the most poorly done genres, in my opinion, in video games. 
as it's mainly about ideas, and most of the science fiction games we have seem to have a lack of any interesting ideas about society, technology, and so forth. Can I argue semantics for one second? When when you say science fiction, fantasy, and horror, it, um, it seems to me like to to think about the fact that you're that we're also talking about form, and we mean sci-fi novel, sci-fi film, both of which share a, a kind of set of conventions about how you tell stories. Fantasy novel, fantasy film, same there. Horror novel, horror film. The, I think the problem is that when you bring that over to games, you're, you're talking about a medium that is significantly different. Um, so that we, one of the things that, that we should get on the table, I guess, is the idea that, that we also need to talk about the medium itself and, and how the story is going to be delivered. And I think that that might be the beginning of an answer to the question of why we don't have any really good kind of thoughtful sci-fi in games, because those ideas... I think most obviously well captured in written word and then brilliant directors. I'm thinking here of Tarkovsky um, can capture that film, although it's, it's hideously difficult. I think much more difficult in film than it is in, in print. But then when we get to games, I think it, it's maybe even still more difficult. And uh, I think we're just kind of working up to the point where we can think about those things. I'm, I'm not quite as down, I think, maybe on science fiction as you are, because I, I think that uh, Mass Effect and even Halo began to do a job of, of thinking about the same sorts of, not, not the kind of high art issues that you find in Stanislav Lem and, and Andrei Tarkovsky, but, but the kind of middle brow issues of what the hell would we be doing in space if we were out there? It's funny when you think about science fiction, uh, I mean, if you were just looking in at, you, you've heard about this video game thing, and you've got these, these genres that you know, which one would probably be most likely to be a good video game? You know, it's so tech-oriented, and it's so much about sort of geekiness that you figure science fiction would be totally hammered by video games. Like, we would totally get that. Um, but I agree that we struggle with it, and I, I think it's because science fiction operates so often so metaphorically and so subtly as opposed to horror which is such an experiential thing and you can put a person into a first person mode or even a third person mode you know exploring these dark environments you can render that in a video game and that experience so primally you know it's so you can feel it and it can be very scary uh whereas science fiction uh, even middlebrow science fiction, as, as, as Roger calls it, is, is, has a certain kind of ambitiousness, a kind of a literariness, if you will, that I think games just, you know, struggle to replicate or, or somehow translate. And here I think we're, we get to the, the matter of the mashups again, because it, it seems to me that as designers move closer to, to doing more expressive stuff, um, and I'm thinking of things like Bioshock and, uh, uh, Fallout 3, Far Cry 2 even, that you get a melding of RPG and shooter and action and adventure such that it, it seems that maybe we're moving towards a state where we're going to lose the kind of mechanics genres, except for very specific and maybe non-narrative games. And for the most part, we're going to think of narrative games all as being one medium, the way we think of novel and film as one uh, as one medium, despite the huge difference of mind, which really do extend to the very nature of the medium. One genre in particular, I believe, it's done very well in games and extremely lucid throughout every single video game genre, whether it's RPG or platformer or action game, is the fantasy genre. 
Nintendo gets the fairy tale very well. I know Batista and like the Lord of the Rings games are very high fantasy. Then we have the sort of mythos fantasy we get from both Kid Icarus and maybe God of War and Prince of Persia. And mm. it seems that kind of story is able to go through all these different video game genres and mashups of mechanics very well as opposed to other genres we have talked about so far. Absolutely. I, I feel like um, this is the area where I... I kind of most comfortable talking about because I'm, I'm teaching, I teach myth all the time. And for me, all of these things are just one platform for myth. That is uh, a Eliada, Mircea Eliada called uh, Illud Tempus, uh, which just means that time, the, uh, the kind of once upon a time world of fairy tales and Greek mythology, um, Norse mythology, which we see, I think, increasingly in games, that all of these are places where you can put stories that have to them a kind of what I call a cultural truth value. That is uh, the idea that by telling these stories, we can talk about things that are going beyond the specifics of more everyday stories. Um, and for example, uh, what the gods do in the Iliad and the Odyssey is something that, that kind of takes us out of uh, the, the here and now. In the same way, I, I think the, the supernatural elements, the fantasy elements of Lord of the Rings games, uh, Elder Scrolls games, all of those things are, are there to, to just tell a story, the, the basic outlines of which are pretty recognizable um, and are shared across all different realms of content. Um, I mean, the basic story of Grand Theft Auto uh, is more or less the same as, as things that go on in fantasy games as well. But being able to put things in this kind of mythic world means that uh, you can tell a story that doesn't have to be specific and still is something that everybody mostly can identify with. Do you think this is an honest question? I, I don't. I'm not pitching some question that I already know the answer to. How much of the fantasy setting in video games, as the kind of default setting for for many years, is just an extension of Dungeons and Dragons as the kind of foundational text? You know that it, if Gygax and, his, and the gang had been doing sci-fi, would video games have gone in that direction instead? Is there something? I mean, I'm hearing you say there's something specific to the kind of mythos of fantasy that lends itself well. But I'm, I'm also just wondering how much of that is just an extension of the roots of, of games like this. And that's kind of where we started and that's kind of where we stayed. I, I think pretty little because I, I think that when we were kids, the vast majority of us were, were raised on fantasy stories. And part of that is Disney. Uh, but it's not just Disney. It's fairy tales from the Brothers Grimm, Hansel and Gretel, in, in which I think parents from time immemorial have perhaps mistakenly wanted to, to tell their kids stories that, that would be um, both mildly didactic and perhaps not quite as traumatic as real world stories are. And I think we now know, thanks to Bruno Bettelheim, that that's not true and that, that these stories can be just as traumatic. I mean, Hansel and Gretel is a horror show. <laughs> uh, but, but in any case, it, it's something that seems to us to go along with play very, very easily and very nicely. And I, I think there's probably some influence from the Dungeons and Dragons background. And Dungeons and Dragons, of course, comes straight from the, the Tolkien fanaticism of uh, the 60s. So it, um, I think that, that Dungeons & Dragons is part of it, but it's part of it because it's 
part of a much larger cultural background of fairy tale stories and, and mythological stories. I mean, the, the great myths of the, the Greek tradition come to us from 2,500 years ago and kind of continue on as building blocks of literature uh, ever since then. Do you want to look at fantasy in the Japanese games from Zelda to Suikoden to even Final Fantasy and how even that works very well for them across you know, the, the pond? I think it's it, what what I'm always struck by is how um, how familiar that fantasy world seems. Well, for me, it, I, I'm most comfortable talking about Legend of Zelda. I think there's just something about that game world that's just really seductive. I don't quite understand why that series over time has become more popular here. I'm not sure I I could account for sort of culturally what's happening there, but. I, I do think we, we've always been sort of suckers for, you know, the, the hero quest on, under the sort of underdog hero. And Link, I don't know, there's just, it's hard to articulate what it is about that character. Obviously, he's a little bit of a blank slate, and I think that that's easy to sort of sink your teeth into. But there's something in my mind about those, those games in terms of genre that sort of says to me, um, when I load them up within 10 minutes or so of playing them, I just feel like I'm at home. I mean, there's a certain familiarity that they communicate, and that's part of what's objectionable about them to some people because it's like, oh, it's the same old thing over and over again. Uh, you know, it's all sort of structurally the same thing. But I have to say, combined inside all of that is this sense of feeling like you're at home when you play a Zelda game. And if you really love those games, to me, it's it just feels nice. I always looked at the story of Zelda as a sort of myth that's being retold over and over again by a different person. Yeah, yeah. That's I'd say the same would go with Mario, with him saving the princess every game. Yeah, exactly. That that, and I think that really matters. That they they apparently wipe the slate clean and you start over each time, but you really don't. You carry with you this kind of you know archetypal story that we understand that we we understand how it works, and then each game sort of uh, retells that in its own way. And there's something probably, I suppose, on the negative side, lazy, and probably on the positive side. It's kind of a bedrock experience that you have once you're in that environment. You understand it's a solid structure to build a game on, and if they're clever about how they build all the elements around it, it feels great to do it each time. Travis, Miguel, I know you've had some familiarity with both Final Fantasy and Zelda, if I'm correct? Um, a little bit with Zelda. I've had more with Final Fantasy. I'm not a big fan of the of the Zelda series. Yeah, I was wondering what attracts you to Final Fantasy as opposed to Zelda, and how do you think that genre works? And is it the game mechanics? Is it just the way the story's told through that mechanic? Yeah, I think the the problem I have with Zelda is maybe it's a little bit too stripped down story wise for me. Um, I'm not a Final Fantasy fanboy in any way at all, but it's just a little. It's a little too mythic for me. There's not enough details to fill in the gaps, so I think that's the reason that I'm not a huge fan of it. I wonder if people play Zelda for the story, if there's anything about those games that seem to attract that part of your interest in games in particular. It, I mean, I'm a huge narrative nut. You know, I'm, I'm always looking for that with games, but I don't really think that's what I get from Zelda, at least not in any kind of complex storytelling that you know mines some kind of fundamental truth of human existence or something but i do think that there's a simplicity to them they really are kind of like fairy tales so that when you encounter a character like midna for example in twilight princess she's you in a way because she turns out to be a very rich character 
but like often you do in fairy tales, it's not spelled out for you. She doesn't get a lot of uh, what you might call screen time, I guess. So she's not fleshed out or whatever, however you want to describe that. But if you fill in the blanks yourself, as I think those games invite you to do, and sort of connect with her in your own way, then she can be a very vital, very rich character within that quote-unquote story. Yeah, I've just never made it that far into a Zelda game, so I probably haven't gotten a chance to add flesh to the to the characters that are in the games. Oh, I I think it what we have what you're dealing with is um, archetypes, um, and I, I'm not an especially Jungian guy, but the uh, the basic structure of the story, which as you guys were saying, and I agree with this entirely, gets recapitulated over and over and over again. And I think really the same thing happens in, in ancient epic as well. That recapitulation reinforces these um, very basic, almost hardwired character types that each of which I think corresponds to something inside of everybody. And so that framework of, okay, here are these characters and you know these characters and now do what's appropriate in the situation and go through the, the basic gameplay that, that you know so well. Really just tell this story, which is so comforting is the word that comes to mind, and pleasurable is maybe a good one, and enjoy it and explore the world. I, I think it's a, a brilliant concept, and I, I think it's part and parcel of the stories that happen in that Illud Tempus again, the, which we, I think, just tend to call fantasy. The reason I brought up Final Fantasy is because I thought it was a too big of a franchise to ignore, and because it's not done by Nintendo, I thought it was a very different, interesting take from another developer from Japan that takes a similar approach of taking, you know, releasing a Final Fantasy over and over again. To me, Final Fantasy games, I, I've always been interested in them more than I've liked them in a certain way. I mean, I kind of like find myself, even with the most recent ones, I admire them for some of the things they do. And I'm always kind of interested in what little um, twists or what little changes they'll ring on the uh, turn-based combat, for example, or will it be more action-oriented or how will they deal with your inventory or how will they deal with special power-ups or you know, uh, leveling up in certain, certain ways. But I, I've never connected to those stories. They never interest me. Even Final Fantasy VII, I, I, they always have felt just incredibly manipulative to me, incredibly, I don't know, aimed at a kind of a 13-year-old fantasy. If Whatever the Final Fantasy is, it's, it's, it's about a 13-year-old fantasy. <laughs> and like, I, I mean, like really sincere apology. I mean, people love that series, so I'm, that's, I'm purely talking for myself here and kind of my own entree into that series. But I, I try them each time they come out. The, the fighting is fun. I love what they do with that, but I tend to get tired of it. Uh, but the stories, uh, I just haven't ever connected. It's the characters for me, and I, I kind of in, am in agreement with you. And I, I have not played very much at all, really only a, um, a bit of seven. Um, but I, I, I feel kind of the same way, and, and so many of my students just love them. Just as you said, it, it's not about the games it's about me i think in my reaction but it it i have the same reaction you do although maybe not as strongly to legend of zelda um and i think it's maybe something about our generation that those characters are the ones that kind of stick close to our hearts and the the final fantasy ones not so much maybe not our generation maybe just our age i agree with both of you guys as far as the final fantasy series goes um i think it's funny that you say it's directed towards the 13 year olds uh, michael 
what about the Persona series? Because that the age group of the characters is definitely uh, in that range, but it, uh, the character is a lot more fleshed out in those games. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think that's a very different approach. So it also has that the mashup characteristic more than the Final Fantasy series does with the the high school simulator uh, with the RPG. Yeah, very much so. I mean, it, it it's always felt to me like Final Fantasy struggles with each incarnation to try to be pop, whatever pop is at that time, you know? And so if that means, you know, it's about, you know, getting new clothes that are cool looking as, as rewards for, for, for moving along through the game, or if it means the way that the character's hair <laughs> uh, just seems to be, you know, just sort of quaffed in certain ways that, that suggest whatever, you know, Japanese... 13-year-old version of cool is at that moment. Um, but with Persona series, I mean, they, there's just a certain edginess to those games that I think Final Fantasy series has, has tended to want to play it safe thematically and just in terms of what, what you see on the screen. I mean, you put a gun to your head and you blow your head off to, uh, you know, to, to enter the, the, the world of, of, of the game to you know, prepare to fight monsters, basically. That's not anything you're going to see in a Final Fantasy game. It, one, one thing about the, the high school um uh, mechanics, I guess, if you want, in Persona, is it seems to me that that high school is used there as a metaphor for the way that everybody, not just kids in high school, feels about their lives. I think none of us really ever gets past high school, and so it, I think although it's um, really interesting to compare the the kind of high school mentality of Final Fantasy with the um, what's going on in Persona, I think in the end it, it shows us more about the way that, that high school is being used in Persona as a very clever frame for uh, the exploration Michael was just talking about of the psyche. Because there's so many Final Fantasies and they've evolved so much, how do you see the trajectory of how the mechanics of the JRPG in Final Fantasy has evolved in tandem with the way fa- the fantasy genre is treated in Final Fantasy as it moves on? Like when they add the class system or how they change the turn-based attack systems, do you see a sort of similar growth or maturity of an arc in the way they approach the mechanics the same way they attempt to approach the growing maturity of the Final Fantasy narratives and the fantasy they present with each iteration of that game in the series? This just sounds like I'm, you know, hammering Final Fantasy over and over, and I, I, I don't, that's not my intention, and I, tons and tons of people love these games, so again, I'll just a caveat, but... um. You know, mechanically, I, I see those games as just incredibly conservative. Uh, that, you know, the, the tiniest little incremental changes are hailed as like these revolutionary <laughs> changes in the game. It's the same game. It's, we've been playing the same game forever. Uh, and, and I, and I understand that, that you, you overhaul the game in the sense that you go and tell different stories and put them in different settings and whatever. So they, they, they build the game anew each time. I get that it's not, you know, the same characters being led through the, the, a, a series of sequels, but ultimately it's the same game mechanically where an audience has extremely specific expectations for that game and an audience that, that will vociferously resist anything that pushes it in any direction too far. So, you know, from an outsider's perspective, looking at some of the, what I would consider to be rather minor mechanical changes that they've made it just it feels to me like the kind of outcry that sometimes occurs about whether or not i should be able to attack in real time or whether i should attack after waiting a set period of time i mean that that basic question 
I understand it's interesting to some people, but it still seems to me like we're just arguing or, or dealing in terms of game design with a very tiny bit of terrain. I think the narratives uh, probably go the same direction. I've never made it through a Final Fantasy narrative, but it, it seems to start out fairly simple and then uh, just add complexity on top of complexity and, and uh, kind of becomes kind of a mess uh, you know, towards the middle and end game. So I'm not sure, sure how much the material has changed through the course of the series as far as that goes either. Maybe, you know, cosmetic changes and, you know, some new complexities. But I don't know if it's evolved that much. The word that springs to mind for me is refinement. I think um, any uh, genre or subgenre undergoes a, a process of refinement um, where it's it's pretty hard from the outside to say that, that anything's going on in terms of development. But from the inside, it, it can feel pretty significant if that uh, that genre or, or that particular series is something that you follow very closely. Yeah. That's a, a wonderful thing that, that might be fairly closely corollary to a discussion of genre. The way that, just as you said, video games, because they iterate so frequently and because the technology at least has been advancing so rapidly, it's unlike the cinema. Whereas the way that games work, and this is another of my comparisons with Ancient Epic, I think because Ancient Epic was re-sung every night, where not only do you have the iterations of individual playthroughs by individual players, but because of that cycle of those individual playthroughs, I, I think the developers iterate much more frequently. Um, so that uh, I, I actually do connect this with Zelda and what Michael was saying before, that we're playing the same story structure over and over again. It's a, a, a process whereby things get to a, an advanced state very, very quickly. And, and frankly, there's a lot of pleasure involved in, in being able to watch that and experience that time after time. And it seems like that also leads to a kind of refinement of both individual genres because shooters iterate and action games iterate and then also to the kind of ultimate form of the mashup um, where we're iterating and iterating and iterating and mashing and mashing and mashing until finally, I think fairly soon, get to, uh, I don't know, the singularity uh, where we finally get that that or genre that, that I was talking about before. And also, I think we need to look at... Uh gameplay genres as well um and not just uh subject genres yeah as far as the uh the mechanics of the game there's different genres to look at in that way as well my first thought is a video game genre i think first person shooter yeah. real-time strategy rpg it it's funny how we 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 think about genre as a mechanical thing and so when you when you're dealing with genre in video games you really got this sort of two-pronged thing you're talking about like Randy said, the science fiction, horror fantasy, all those sorts, that that kind of genre, but also the mechanical side. It gets pretty complicated when you start mixing and matching those elements. Yeah, and it seems to me that the, the mechanical side of it is, um, for games is, is very important. I guess it would be interesting to try to, if there was some way to meld the, the two different kinds of genre...
since we're on um, reiteration, the ruse of this conversation was to bring in Final Fantasy and talk about the evolution on its um, battle system because it seems to integrate new elements from other genres back in. So I was wondering if we can turn the, the, the direction of the discussion away from integrating genres from other mediums into video games and talking about how video games treat their own genres. And since we're talking about the mashup and the reiteration, I think that would be a good place to um, begin that part of this discussion. Well, I think going back to I think what Michael said with the Final Fantasy battle system is um, they do seem to try to integrate whatever is pop into the battle system. So they noticed, you know, people were mostly interested in real-time mechanics, so they they start to integrate some of that in. Um, but yeah, they do. It is kind of a, a slow mashup of what gamers are interested in at the time, though it does seem to lag, you know, fairly far behind the rest of the gaming world. Uh, one way of looking at Final Fantasy, and maybe this is a way of being more fair to it, is that it's it's created a system in and of itself that is what it is. It's sort of like high opera or sort of like kabuki theater <laughs> that you don't ask kabuki theater to push at the boundaries of theatrical innovation. That's not what kabuki theater is. It is a very ritualized, very formal, relying on very specific conventions kind of experience. And that's why it's interesting. And so maybe another way of looking at, at, at these kinds of micro-refinements that happen within Final Fantasy is that it it's it's become a better and better version of itself with more technology and more really expert people being brought to bear on it without necessarily changing. It strikes me that the, the greatest works of art in history have more or less made their own genres. Moby Dick is something that, that springs to mind. Moby Dick novel, but it's, it's not a novel like any other novel is a novel. Same with Ulysses. So I think it's true both in the pop culture realm and in the, the high art realm that um, for a for a work to be fully realized, it actually begins to bend genre to its own purposes and to its own thematics. And I, I guess maybe as I go along with this comment, I'm taking back the the initial, the greatest works of all time. I think it, maybe we're just talking about fully realized works, whether they're great works or not. But I think what Michael just said about Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy is a genre for itself, just as other great uh, and involving games, whether they're high art or not, um, are making genre. Maybe what I'm saying is um, it would be great to, to think of genre as flexibly as we possibly can. You talked before, Roger, about genres mixing up, and maybe finally we'll get that one game that is the definitive of what video games are with meshing up the genres. Uh-huh. And Michael talked about how Final Fantasy is sort of adding whatever's popular to the mechanics of that genre. Do we see that happening currently as horror the horror games are starting to integrate action games and first person shooters start integrating adventure game elements like Half-Life? Do we see that becoming eventually that one game that seems to mash up everything that we want from a game? Well, my the, the two games that I think of, because I, I think of them as kind of the highest state of the narrative art at this point, are, are Bioshock and Far Cry 2. And for me, both of those 
did that beautifully um, to their own ends. And Far Cry 2 is the one I've played more recently. Um, the, the way that the RPG elements of Far Cry work together with the shooter elements work together with the, I don't know, I think of it as the relationship RPG elements where you're actually forming empathetic bonds with non-player characters. That seemed to me to be a kind of admirable mashup and to be a, an interesting counterpoint to the mashup of Bioshock, where, which seems to me to involve more of kind of traditional Monkey Island adventure game action along with its shooter action and its horror action. And so I, I, I guess I'm just saying, yes, absolutely. I, I think we're getting there. We, we probably will never actually be there because there's probably actually no there there. <laughs> but um, we're, we're moving and I like movement. It's unlikely there's a single game that becomes the kind of perfect mashup of, of all genres or that somehow represents some kind of summit achievement necessarily. But I think that evolution is necessary. Change is necessary. You know, it's the it's the Woody Allen line. The shark's got to keep swimming or it dies. <laughs> and if a game that exists within a genre that's very tied and bound to that genre will certify inside that genre over time if, if no changes are allowed to sort of affect it or the designers aren't able to respond to what's new and what's innovative and what's interesting out there. Uh, and I mean, the example that I, I immediately think of in this regard is it's the Fallout series and the kind of battle royal that went on between the real traditional Fallout protectors of the realm. But, you know, when it became clear that Bethesda was going to push that game in a different direction, the resistance was significant and they did it anyway. And hmm. it's a good thing because some people will agree or disagree with the things that they added to it, but if you look at the kind of mashing up they did, they clearly added ac action elements and adventure elements to it even, and uh, there's a way that that game works that clearly is influenced by the games that we've learned since the original old RPGs. I mean, one way of looking at them is mashups are an indicator of a failure of ideas. I don't have any ideas, so I'll take my Bejeweled game and I'll add an RPG element to it, and I have a Puzzle Quest game. Right. Pastiche. <laughs> but right, exactly. Yeah. It it that's I think that's a really awful way of thinking about mashups. And maybe mashup is a bad word, but you use the design elements that serve your goals and you reject the ones that don't. And it, to be rigidly conforming to a certain kind of set of genre expectations seem you, you do that I think at your own peril as an artist. I actually think that mashup is an okay term because the, the reason I like to use it when I say mashup, I'm not saying pastiche. Um, and mashup appears to be kind of value neutral to me. Well, let's look at Japanese survival horror. Let's look at how the evolution of Resident Evil from survival horror to survival, like, not action horror. And looking at maybe Silent Hill or Siren, which strips down all the evolutions of mashups that we see in genre. How do we interrogate um, mashups and how games treat genres within their medium with each other? Well, I don't know if I consider Resident Evil much of a mashup. It seems to have moved from, from one thing to the other uh, to try to gain, uh, I guess, a certain market share or something. Um, but I don't, I don't know if it's actually added new elements while retaining old elements in order to make it something better. Uh, it seems to have kind of lost the the horror element, I guess, at least from what I've read and playing the you know the demo for the fifth game. I don't have any problem with where the Resident Evil franchise has gone. If if there's an audience that wants it to be more like an action shooter, 
and less like like a survival horror game do that you know go for it i think re4 was terrific i loved it uh i didn't think it was scary but uh, i thought it was good for a whole bunch of other reasons but i mean having said that it 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 does interest me uh, i wrote i wrote about this recently that the the next silent hill game uh is is really an attempt to tr- sort of head back to the roots of that of that franchise and make it all about surviving and surviving is hard it's scary because you don't have any help uh, weaponry or anything like that, but escaping. It's sort of, as I wrote about in the piece, it's much more connected to the kinds of nightmares you actually have, which are not, you know, going into a room and blowing up a bunch of zombies' heads, you know, and, and killing people with a with an automatic weapon. It's more <laughs> fleeing some creature that's trying to get you or being trapped in a room somewhere and looking for an exit and having very few resources. They're clearly trying to head back in that direction and I'm interested in that. I think that's a pretty good idea. So you would agree that there are certain ten- tendencies and tenets of survival horror that are essential, and that itself is already a mature genre, and you don't see any sort of mashup improving that space of video game genre. Yeah, I suppose in a way, if I understand your question, I think I think in some ways stripping out what's been mashing up <laughs> the genre is what the new version of Silent Hill is trying to do. And when I say getting back to its roots, I think probably as you're saying that it's that part of what that means is getting pushing out, rejecting the other elements that have kind of crept into that genre and making it more primitive. But, you know, in the end, I mean, I don't want to be too simple minded about this, but in the end, it just needs to be a good game. So if it strips back to its its elements and it, it functions as a more traditional survival horror game, but it's just not fun or it's not interesting, you know, I'd rather play an action adventure horror game <laughs> that's that's good. Um, and I think it, the, the jury is still out uh, whether or not this new Silent Hill game, whether that return to that that primitive form means better or means more fun. I, I I'm inclined to think if they do it right that it will be, but we'll see. Do you want to look at genres that have already reached its limit? I would consider maybe the venture game as having reached the limit of what that genre is and has a very good niche. And I don't, be- I don't know, and I don't know if I believe that any sort of integration of a new mechanic within the point-and-click or text adventure genre would improve it as so much. I think there's, there's still a fair amount of innovation going on in the, the text adventure community. Even though it is, uh, you know, extremely uh, niche area, I think there's probably still plenty you can do with the point-and-click adventure game. It's just not something that a lot of people are interested in anymore, so it's not being done. Um, I think it'll come back. I mean, I, I think that that there is a lot of untapped potential in what's going on in interactive fiction. That is the kind of uh, the text adventure game that I, I think will probably make its way in video versions of adventure games. But I, I think there isn't huge interest right at the moment because that's not where the development is happening. And I imagine it must be very, very hard to program. And it's not the, the kind of programming that most developers are, are oriented Towards. I mean, to the extent that they're doing adventure games, they are point-and-click adventure games, and I, I think the the basic point-and-click interface does seem to be kind of tapped out. But the the way that interactive fiction can play with your perspective is amazing, and I, I think that it's only a, a pretty short technological jump before that kind of comes to the screen. Um, and I, I think it's just going to take a, a few people kind of getting interested in it. But, uh, a game that springs to mind is the uh, that game Judith. Um, that uh, um, 
a browser game that came out a few weeks ago. Very, very short game, very primitive graphics, which worked to its advantage because it, it retold more or less the story of Bluebeard's Castle, a very old kind of primitive fairy tale, but manipulated your perspective in a kind of adventure game framework in an astonishing way. I think speaking of horror, I was I was pretty horrified playing that game as, as yeah. well. Even though it wasn't a survival horror, it was the music more than anything else. I think. Yeah, uh, yeah, and some of the sound effects as well. You know, sometimes it's not the designer or the genre that pushes these things one way or another, but it's the hardware. And uh, I think the iPhone is going to have a continue to have a pretty big impact on these things. Just that the way that you have to interface with that device, that particular kind of action will encourage a kind of game design that may harken back in some ways to adventure games. They may not necessarily be classified as point old-school point-and-click adventure games, but if you really pay attention to what you're doing with the interface on that device, it's a lot like that. It's interesting how the how the smaller production, the indie games, are, are some of the most daring mashups, I guess, because not only the limited technology, but also the, the more risk than a big-budget game would. You know, it's hard to have a conversation about video games without Bioshock coming up at some point or half. <laughs> and uh, it, that that game in particular interests me in the way that it it extracts the kind of the best of certain genres. It it's a kind of an action adventure shooter, right? And told you know sort of first person mode. Um, and I think there are moments in that game when it feels very much like you're playing a shooter. Other moments when it feels like you're kind of exploring in a kind of an adventure setting, and, and other times when it just feels very action-oriented with you know all the narrative stuff. It just seems to me that um, as we think about how genre morphs and mashes up and all and does all these sorts of things, it's interesting to compare how designers plant those those elements of genre into their games, and then what winds up being useful about that, and what lessons you learn from it, and then how other games learn those lessons and borrow it and copy it or whatever it's just it's a fascinating kind of thing to stand back and and look at how it all plays out sure and with bioshock it's most of the adventure elements are really just a, a really well-developed world you know around the shooter mechanics so it'd be nice to see some more of that in other games as well yeah exactly i mean if, if you're an old school gamer there's just something kind of wonderful about realizing as you're making your way through Bioshock and all of the all of the information you receive from that game purely because of it, of its environments, just looking at stuff and reading stuff, they really it's a lot like Monkey Island. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you're looking at stuff, you're trying to figure out what you're supposed to do, you, and and the the environment is sending you information, and you have to pay attention to it, and it you know you're thinking about things. There's a kind of a whole art style behind it, but there's just there, there's something continuous about game design, if you've been playing games for a while, that is, I think, part of the pleasure of playing games is the way you can connect, connect those dots in your head from your past experiences. First-person shooters have been mature for almost a decade now, and the way you see how that 
genre of first-person shooter has evolved is mainly because of the mashup, because I don't believe designers know a new way of doing a first-person shooter. Maybe Metroid for the GameCube was the first new evolution of what a first-person shooter was. And you also mentioned how the iPhone changing technology will add new elements to the genre. And it seems the Wii has also failed in trying to add new elements to the first person's first perspective. I'm sorry, my, my question's sort of going off on a tangent on two different main topics, but what do you see going on with the evolution of the first-person shooter genre, and what do you see going on with the first-person perspective going into the Wii? What do you mean by the, specifically by the first-person perspective on the Wii, or how that would, how the Wii's technology would allow uh, something different using the first-person perspective? Well, it's it's the interface. It's the technology of moving more physically into the game world, but everyone's so comfortable with using the joystick. Uh, it seems that Wii has created its own genre in create like using your avatar moving physically, like through Wii Fit or Wii Sports, but it hasn't done in the first person's perspective very well. If we're looking at say games like Red Steel, or I'm not sure that many other first-person games that go there besides the sort of rail shooter light games we've had, which is just a throwback. I think it has less to do with whether or not the hardware or the designers for the hardware have figured out how to do a first-person shooter effectively on the Wii. I mean, I think that's that's part of it. Maybe if you know this really masterpiece FPS came out on it, people would flock to it. But I think each day that goes by, I become more and more convinced that the, the Wii has etched out its demographic and that, and that's true for the DS as well. That those kind of games are antithetical, essentially, to the experience that most Wii and DS owners want. Period. So you're you're looking at games that really push the edge that have come out in recent recent months, failing pretty significantly in terms of sales. Um, we we wondered if this proof would come, and I think it has come, frankly, that 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 audience is just what it is. And don't expect first-person shooters on the Wii because it's just not going to happen. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting because we're th- there is no discrepancy of genre in video games, but there is a discrepancy of genre in consoles, which is extremely odd. It seems more to do with marketing. Why is genre put in different consoles these days, especially um, than there are in just say? film and video, which are two different sorts of medium. but a pretty big stumbling block for the first-person perspective on the Wii, uh, just because if you're going to use the hardware physically, there needs to be some representation, uh, physical representation on the screen, you know, to give the player something to hold on to. So I think that would, I mean, that's one reason that I don't think that first-person shooters are ever going to do very well on the Wii. Or at least to utilize the technology or the, all the possible mechanics that could be with the Wii Moon. You could look at Chinatown Wars on the DS from Rockstar as a as a kind of a classic allegory. <laughs> that what it is 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 arguably the most successful game franchise out there, right? I mean, you could quibble and say it's Mario or whatever, but GTA is huge, and it's got a huge fan base that's vigorous and interested in what come next. You've got a game that's, in my opinion, brilliantly executed on the DS. Just, it would be hard to imagine a game working better on that system and using that hardware more effectively than that game does. So, you know, you've got everything in place, a great game and a, from a big developer, 
and it no one wants it. I mean, the hardcore people like me who bought it love it, and we've talked about it, but it it's not selling. And I think it just demonstrates the reality that console demographics outweigh all other consideration. That we're still where we were 15 years ago. That if you buy a you buy a Nintendo system to play these games, you buy a PlayStation to play these games, and and that and you're, if you're a PC gamer, you got your thing going on, and we're all still in our little separate camps. And as time goes by, I think if you if you're happening with the PS3 and the Xbox, and the ways that those demographics look, and and the kinds of games that are being released, um, it's even you know it's amplified further. We we've divided the market based on hardware. Specifically with Chinatown, where's that? Um, I wonder if the GTA audience is really that interested uh, in playing a GTA game with stripped-down graphics uh, and new gameplay mechanics. I think a lot of them would probably turn their nose up at that kind of thing. Exactly. Well, I'm not a GTA hardcore guy. Um, I I do enjoy – I haven't finished one, but I've gotten significantly into uh, three of them. Um, But there's something – and I love my DS – and play Phantom, played a lot of Phantom Hourglass, uh, played a lot of Chess Master uh, on the DS, but it's not, it's not especially to have the GTA experience for me on the DS. And I'm trying to think why that is. And it, uh, what comes to mind is the idea of sitting on my couch with my fairly large screen TV immersing myself. And I, I certainly accept as a concept the idea that I do get immersed in DS games, but it's not the same kind of immersion. There's a, The word that keeps ringing to mind is cinematic, strange as that is. There's a, a cinematic immersion for me that takes place in GTA that I, I can't, I mean, and I'm probably wrong about this, and if I played Chinatown Wars, I'd, I'd realize I was wrong about it. But my initial Im- impression is that it wouldn't happen for me, um, and that I, I GTA doesn't work for me on the DS as a concept that makes me want to go and do it. And I think yeah, the, so yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead, Travis. I think the perspective on the GTA is a lot of what it is as well. If you look at the popularity of GTA 1 and 2, um, that has the same perspective as Chinatown Wars, part of what makes me so excited about GTA is just the huge world that you can look out into um, and going to a more of a top-down perspective, no matter what the technology is. I, I just think the way you describe that, Roger, you are the third strike. I mean that you <laughs> the strike one is obviously, you know, kids, families that have DSs, they're not gonna play GTA. GTA fans, you know, that are playing GTA four, San Andreas that have you know been with the series on the, the PS two, they have a certain cinematic expectation, all that stuff. They're not gonna they don't even own a DS necessarily. Yeah. They're not gonna play it. But you're so you're the last Strike left, and and, and and I think you represent a lot of people. You love GTA, or, or at least you're interested in it. You have a DS, love your DS, but you don't want to play on that system. Yeah. And it, I, that just fascinates me. That, that yeah, me, me too, because it's not – I mean, I, I think when we think about marketing and the, the divides between the consoles, that we always think of it as having something sinister about it, that, that these uh, corporations are, are changing the way that, that we feel about our games, and, and we wish they wouldn't. But this strikes me as, as something that just has to do with the – technological configurations of, of the system. Um, and it is, it's absolutely fascinating. And, and yet I wish it didn't exist. Now, this is ext- an extremely interesting avenue we're going down because video games, I see this is 
probably the only medium where a genre can exist, all the genres can exist in the medium, but they cannot exist with the the technology that provides that medium. Yeah. Um, if you, yeah. It's, it would be as if James weren't readable on a Kindle. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can watch movies on your iPhone and people expect that, but you can't play a similar kind of game, say a GTA, on a DS. I don't believe you would find that in any other medium. Maybe for books. I don't know how much people read their Kindles, but that's fascinating to me. It is, and I think it partly is attributable to the way that consoles have become sort of culturally defined. That they We could paint a picture of what we might assume to be the typical Xbox 360 owner, and it would be grossly overgeneralized, but it, it probably in a lot of people's minds would be a guy, you know, who's 18 to, to 25, 30, who likes shooters, who likes things that blow up and violence <laughs> and online games and co- competition, right? Yeah, and and that that's what an Xbox 360 user looks like. Again, overgeneralized to be sure, but is that basically right in terms of the way the market looks at that at that console? Yeah. So you know, if, if that's the case, then we you know, with many exceptions, then like what you said, Randy, it, it it will it will continue to be true just as it was true, you know, for the GameCube. I think it's changing with regard to the 360. I think I think the Wii and the DS are are their own thing, and because of the the different technological configuration, which is enormously to Nintendo's credit, at least in in some very very important ways. But with the growth of Xbox Live Arcade, I'm seeing because I'm I'm kind of close to an Xbox 360 community. I'm seeing many many people who aren't really into shooters, who are. Um, generally older who are, are interested in strategy and uh, and in casual games. My, the mature gamer community where I, I hang out a little bit called Seasoned Gamers started around Halo. It, it, it would not exist without Halo 2. But as it evolved, it kept growing and growing and growing. And eventually, I, I would say a third of the people who, who hang out there play very few shooters, if, if any. And there's now a kind of thriving strategy community who actually play uh, Diplomacy by email. Uh, we have an ongoing game. so it, and, and we're all Xbox 360 owners. Some of us also have other systems. But I think we, if we were given the Desert Island choice, we would go with a, the 360. And, and for the strategy people, that's really much more because you can play Carcassonne, you can play Peggle. There, there is, I think there's an element of it that, that was kind of pure marketing that's now breaking down. And yet there's still that element that separates Xbox 360 and PS3 from Wii and DS. I think you're right about that, and I, I don't mean to overstate it, but I... No, but even, I, I... Even the games you mentioned, I think that they're sort of gamer games, like... Uh. You know, and I don't want to necessarily say hardcore casual, but it, it seems logical to me that some gamers who really love uh, and have been playing games for a long time would make the kind of transitions that you talked about from Halo to other sorts of games. A game like Viva Pinata is just going to be dead on arrival. Yeah. That there's not that that's a, a pretty darn good game. It's a pretty well designed game. It looks great. Um, maybe they didn't market it right. That game was an attempt, it seems to me, to identify a different kind of market for that console and push in that direction. And it it suggested that that particular kind of audience just doesn't exist on that console. I you know I I'm, I, I feel with that comment about sixty percent, but forty percent of me is remembering my daughter trying to play Viva Pinata, a, a very smart kid 
at the age of seven and it was too hard. It it was, it was too complex. Um, So, I mean, and she loved to watch me play it, but after a while watching your dad play the game that's clearly targeted at you is is (laughs) quite as fun. So do you, you think that if it had been, or if other family oriented games like that or an animal crossing sort of experience or whatever, if those games were released for the 360, that they would shot. I, I do, I, I do. Um, the my example is Lego Star Wars, which is the game that that has had by far the most play on my 360 uh, over the last year. And my six-year-old and my nine-year-old play over Xbox Live with their seven-year-old cousin every Sunday night. And whenever I talk, I mean, it, 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 Lego Star Wars is hard to judge, obviously, because it's not an, a 360 exclusive, and so people are playing on on lots of systems. But but that's that game as a as a 360 title has kind of captured a lot of share of of 360 owners, I think. And and so I, I do I, I think that a game like Animal Crossing could succeed. So do are we saying that game consoles have uh, the console itself has a genre bias or are we just saying the demographic for these consoles are the bias i think we're we're saying both but that maybe the most interesting facet of it is the divide between xbox playstation on the one hand and Wii, and then maybe ds on a third hand because i don't think that we and ds i mean they're obviously both nintendo systems but I, I i think they do different things i would say ds and iphone have very different markets as well yeah 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 well i i think it you know the temptation there is is to say well you know now that we know that the Wii market is just families and kids and people who want friendly games or whatever, and that they're not going to buy uh, House of the Dead, Overkill, or whatever, that that's just what that is, and we can continue to innovate in the other spaces. And I, I think that that would be horrible because yeah. it, that, that Wii audience, which is huge and continues to grow like crazy, is just uh, ripe for developers to step in and think about – genre think about the stuff we've been talking about think about innovating think about refining but don't assume that just because there may not be a bioshock audience in the we crowd that you can't innovate or that you can't think in in really creative and clever ways about a lot of the things we've been talking about I, I'm, I'm trying to experiment with this format i'm going to try to experiment of three or four segments on genre because i think we dealt with genre in different facets of video games both in terms of within video games, uh, intertextually within video games, and with the device. So I think this will be a very interesting podcast. Well, I've enjoyed it immensely. Thank you guys very much. Yes. Yeah, thank you great. for inviting me. I appreciate it. No, I want to thank you all for coming. Thanks for uh, clearing up your schedule for this episode. And that about concludes this week's episode once again i would like to thank our faculty guest chairs roger travis and michael abbott and of course a very special thanks to travis mcgill who joined in on the discussion as well on a note i do have to say that the cdc podcast will be taking a brief hiatus right now we're currently trying to figure out what is going to happen to criticaldistance.com and the podcast is being put temporarily on a back burner so please take this time to leave a comment so i can improve on the podcast and come back with full force 
I do have some future episodes planned. I would like to thank all of you for listening, and I hope to be back soon. Hopefully we'll have original music, a podcast icon, and all that other jazz that you're used to from other websites. Once again, all of our blogs are linked on the show notes. You can check out the games and articles we mentioned on this podcast on there as well. And visit us under the free notes server at IRC. The room is GBConfab, and we would love to continue this discussion with you. Once again, thanks for listening, and I hope to have a new episode for you soon. There is, I mean, it, it seems like genre always has the tendency, that, and in a sense, that's how tragedy and then comedy get born. Um, in Athens, you, you take what was originally uh, just a bunch of people singing a story from myth, and then you add Homer in there, and all of a sudden you have this new genre that Aeschylus is off on. And then you add uh, the comic revel in there, and you have comedy and then satyr play. So it's, I mean, I, I think it's absolutely true, and it's neat that it's happening with games. Um, as as usual, though, as the classicist, I'm always going back and, and thinking, well, what's something in the past as well as chronically what's going on right now. We didn't we didn't get we didn't go back that far. We didn't. Uh, we, we, I, as I recall, maybe, Randy, you can help jog my memory. We sort of just kind of scratched the surface of a conversation. And then we kind of said, well, let's leave it for the podcast. If that's what we choose to talk about, we don't you know, we can explore it there. And we didn't dig too hard uh, in the IRC. But I mean, I'm heck. I'm. I'll talk about anything you guys want to talk about. Um, to know, I to know, I I have not played a Final Fantasy game ever. So, <laughs> I'll just try. So all that stuff we said, we were just making it up. <laughs> it's actually a real-time strategy game. <laughs> oh, we weren't talking about tactics. <laughs> right. Hmm.